You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. And as you're doing that, if you please open with me in your Bibles to... The book of Philippians. If there's anybody who needs a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up in the air. We'll make sure that somebody, uh, one of our ushers, brings you a Bible so you can follow along. Because uh, what we do here at Whitefields, what we like to do, is we like to study uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through whole books of the Bible. We feel that that's the best way that we can really hear God's voice speaking through the uh, Word of God. And so that's what we do most of the time. Every now and then we'll do something topical, something different. But for the most part, that's what we do right now. We've been in a study of the book of Philippians uh, for the past couple of weeks called The Pursuit of Happiness. By the way, middle school class is meeting down the stairs here. So if you have any middle, school, middle schoolers with us, uh, feel free to make your way down there. Class is beginning. Um, I was going to tell you one more thing. Yes, uh, for those of you who like to read the Bible on your phone, if you use the YouVersion Bible app, you'll find live notes in there. And today's a good day if you haven't done that, if you've been thinking about doing it. Today's a good day to do that because we've got a lot of slides and a lot of notes, and it's kind of cool. You can interact. You can leave notes for yourself, that kind of stuff. So if you haven't done that, if you've been thinking about it, today's a good day to check that out. Again, for the past several weeks, we've been studying through Paul's letter to the Philippians, And today we are coming to the end of it. Uh, Next week we are beginning a new series, which we will be studying Paul's letter to the Colossians. So literally just turn in the page, you're going to the next page. And that series is going to be titled Crux. Now Crux, what does that mean? The crux of an issue is the, the essential part, the most important part, the most important matter. And Crux, as you may know, is also the Latin word for cross. And so that's what this study is going to be about. It's going to be about the centrality of Christ, the centrality of the cross in all aspects of our lives. But as for today, we are studying the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is known as the Epistle of Joy. And that's why we are calling this study the Pursuit of Happiness, because we are talking about in this study the happiness that we all desire and the joy which we were made for and what the Bible says about how it is attained. So in many ways here with this last section, Paul has saved the best for last. So this is going to be a great study. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a living God. You are God who speaks to us. And today, Lord, we come to you as a group and we open our ears and we open our hearts and we ask that you'd speak to us. We ask that you would show us areas of our lives where you want to bring things to the surface and you want to do work, Lord. We want to be right with you. And Lord, if there's need for encouragement, Lord, I pray that you'd encourage us. If there's need for correction, Lord, would you correct us? If there's need for stirring up, Lord, would you stir us up? We just ask that your will would be done in our lives, that we would hear your word, and that it would affect us, and that we would receive it and bear much fruit for your kingdom and for your name, for your glory, and for our good. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The great theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is joy. Now, joy is defined in the dictionary as a feeling of intense happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. According to author Richard Hibbs, here's what he says, he's a 16th century um, Puritan. He said this, happiness is the desire of all people. It is a desire grafted into the heart of every person, and it is the center of all of the searchings of our hearts and the turnings of our lives. 
In other words, everything we do in life, from the career we choose to the desire to be married or to have children, from uh, how we choose to eat, how we choose to exercise, the recreation we do, everything that we do is driven, both the good and the bad, everything we do is driven by a singular pursuit, and that pursuit is the pursuit of happiness. Here's another writer, another uh, Puritan, Thomas Manton. He said this, All people naturally desire happiness, but here's the problem. We do not often make a right choice of the means that may bring us to the happiness we desire. In other words, we get into problems when we look for happiness in all the wrong places. And if you think about that, that's where our world has many of its problems. We look for happiness in the wrong places. But pursuing happiness, pursuing joy is not a bad thing. Because the Bible tells us that God made us, He created us for joy, eternal joy in His presence. But we were cut off from that because of sin and rebellion against God. Sin and rebellion against God in the world and even in our own hearts personally. We got ourselves into this situation, but yet God in his love has not abandoned us to this situation. The reason that Jesus Christ came into the world was so that he might restore us to the joy that we were made for by taking our curse away from us upon himself and bearing it in his body on the cross. So here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he is writing them to tell them that true joy, the true joy which all people seek, is found in Christ and it is experienced through relationship with him. The title of today's message is Learning Contentment While Fighting Complacency. Learning Contentment While Fighting Complacency. Let's go ahead and read. We're going to read a little bit bigger section from verses 10 to 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. A little background for those of you who haven't been with us for this entire series, or maybe you're just visiting today, welcome. Uh, here's the background to this. Paul the Apostle is the great missionary of the early church. And during the first century, he traveled all over the Roman world, the Mediterranean world, telling people about Jesus and planting churches wherever he went. He would pastor these churches for a time. He would teach them. He would teach them basic doctrine. And he would establish a leadership for that church. He would train them. And then he would move on to the next place and and he would do it again. And this is how Christianity spread throughout much of the world. One of the cities that Paul planted a church in was the city of Philippi, which is uh, in northern Greece in the region of Macedonia. 
Ten years after he started that church, Paul now finds himself in a jail cell in Rome, facing possible execution for preaching the gospel. And it is from that jail cell that he now writes this letter to the Philippians. Now, there were several reasons why he wrote this letter. One reason was simply to encourage them in their faith, to encourage them to stay the course, to stay in their lane, to keep going and keep doing the things that he had taught them to stick with it and and stand fast in the Lord. Another reason he wrote them was to warn them about people who were going around teaching bad doctrine. He's saying, hey, keep Jesus the main thing. Make sure it's about what Jesus has done for you and not about things that you need to do for Jesus. He says, stay away from legalism. But really the main reason for this letter is what we come to here in this section. The main reason why Paul wrote this letter was to give them a thank you letter because they sent him a gift, a financial gift of money. And uh, it's kind of funny, you know, when you really look at the letter, you see that this is really the reason why he wrote. And he figured, hey, while I'm at it, I might as well talk about some other things as well. You see, the Philippians had just sent Paul a very generous financial gift. That's what he is speaking of in these verses we just read. And Paul wanted the Philippians to know that he very much appreciated their generosity and that their generosity had not only put food in his stomach, but their generosity had put a smile on God's face. This wasn't the first time that the Philippians had supported Paul financially. We read in other places, like in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that the Philippian Christians were incredibly generous, and they had a history of giving financially to the work of God and to the ministry of Paul. When Paul was serving as a missionary, planting churches, the Philippians supported him financially so that he could do that work. But here's the interesting thing. This is what I find most interesting. The region of Macedonia, where Philippi was located, was one of the poorest regions of the Roman Empire. In fact, Paul even says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says, I want you to know about the churches in Macedonia, or, you know, that's where Philippi is. So he's saying, I want you to know about the church in Philippi, that their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty... Abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Isn't that interesting? They had an abundance of joy and they were in extreme poverty. Like have you ever seen extreme poverty? Now think about that. Now think about this. They are overflowing with a wealth of generosity. The Philippians weren't rich. They were actually poor. And yet out of their poverty, they gave to support the work of the Lord and the ministry of Paul. The Philippians were following a biblical principle, which which Paul alludes to in Galatians chapter 6, where he says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. He says that the Philippians did this, and not only did they do it, but they did it out of an abundant joy. The Philippians were thankful. They understood that a missionary had come to them at great cost to himself and had told them about Jesus and established a church for them to to worship. And they were full of joy that they had received the gospel, that they had been saved, and they wanted other people to have the same opportunity that they did. They understood that sacrifices had been made so that they could hear the gospel, and they wanted to make sacrifices themselves so that other people could hear the gospel too. And so the Philippians gave, and we know of at least four occasions, there were maybe more, but we know of four at least, when they sent gifts of financial support to Paul. But at the same time, there were also times when no one supported Paul's ministry, not even the Philippians. 
Uh, why? Well, Paul says that in you know, verse 10, because they simply didn't have the opportunity. Now, think about it. Half the time, they probably didn't even know where Paul was. I mean, he's going on a boat in the Mediterranean, crashing on Malta. Nobody knows where he is for years at a time, right? It's not like he has a PayPal account. It's not like he has a bank account with an ATM that they can just deposit money in. You know, they can't do like, find my phone. Where's Paul at right now? They just don't know where he is for years at a time. And so during these seasons when Paul was off the grid and no one was supporting his work, Paul experienced some lean times. We know that there were times when he worked as a tent maker, but it would seem that that was kind of supplemental income, that he was still, uh, there were still times when there was more month at the end of the money, if you know what I mean. Uh, There were times when he went without. There were times when he was hungry and he didn't have anything to eat. And not the kind of thing like, you know, when we say, oh, I'm starving, right? Like my wife always says this, oh, I'm starving. I'm like, well, Don't tell any people who are actually starving that because they'll be super offended, right? Like, I had a cheeseburger an hour ago and I had a Snickers in the car, but I need something now because I'm getting hangry, right? Like hungry and angry at the same time. Well, that's not the kind of hungry that we're talking about here. This is like I haven't eaten in days and I'm starting to have my ribs stick out of the sides, right? It's that kind of hungry. When uh, the Philippians found out that Paul was in jail in Rome, they took up an offering and they sent this money to Paul. In the Roman prison system, uh, prisoners had to pay for their own expenses, which is a double bummer, right? Like you're in jail and you get to pay for it. Pay for your food, your medical expenses, anything else that you needed, clothing, that kind of stuff. And so for Paul to pay for these things, he actually needs financial support while he's in jail. And so they send him this sizable financial gift uh, to Paul, and they, they send it by a man named Epaphroditus. And now Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's writing a letter and sending it back with Epaphroditus back to Philippi to say thank you for this gift. And this brings us to the first thing. We got four points in this section, but here's the first. Number one, it takes faith to be content. It takes faith to be content. You know, contentment is not something that comes naturally to us. Paul says, it's something I had to learn. And I'll tell you this, it takes faith to be content. Two times in this section, Paul says, I learned. I learned how to be content. One place he says, I learned the secret. I figured out the secret to being content no matter what circumstances I'm facing in life. And do you know what the secret is? I'm going to tell you the secret. Are you ready? Here's the secret. Verse 13, I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. How can you be content? Here's how. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through the joy that comes from knowing Jesus, I can withstand anything because I've got the one thing that really matters. You see, the joy of the Lord is like a buoyancy. You know what buoyancy means? It means that you don't sink. You might get pushed down, but you don't stay down. You're unsinkable. And that's what the knowledge of the gospel and the joy of the Lord gives you. It gives you a buoyancy that no matter what life throws at you, you can do all things through Christ who, who strengthens you. Whatever's facing you today, you can face it because of Christ who strengthens you and the joy of the Lord that you have. The reason that contentment is something we must learn is because contentment doesn't come naturally. All of us have within us 
a nagging sense of discontentment. You have it in your heart, I have it in my heart, and advertisers and marketers know this. This is what they exploit. They tug on this uh, sense of discontentment within the human heart, and they put before our eyes just a constant, never-ending stream of images that say, you know, this is where you really want to live. This is where you, this is the car you really want to drive. This is the life you really want to have. This is the spouse you really want to have, not the one you do have. This is what you really want to look like. And what they're doing is they're playing on, they're tugging on the discontentment which is already present within our hearts. You see, discontentment is what causes people to spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like, right? But here's what the Bible teaches. The secret to being content is to really understand the gospel. The secret to being content is to really understand the gospel. Here's why. Because the message of the gospel is that God sent his son into the world to suffer and die on your behalf, to live a perfect life, the life that you couldn't live, to die a sacrificial death in your place, to rise from the dead, conquering over death, all of that so that you could be saved. And here's what that tells you. It tells you that if God would send his son into the world, if God would trade a throne for a cross, that means that he loves you, and that means that he is 100% committed to the absolute best for you, the ultimate best for you. There's no question when you consider that God would go so far as to leave heaven to trade his crown of glory for a crown of thorns, then there's no question whether or not he loves you. Absolutely. And if you know that, if you understand that, if you let that sink into your mind and into your heart, guess what? It enables you to be content whatever circumstances you face, knowing that the almighty God who loves you is 100% committed to you and he has allowed it in your life. And if he has then you can be content. See, here's why. Contentment is based on trusting. Contentment is based on trusting in God's love, God's power, and God's plan. I'll say that again. Contentment is based on trusting in God's love, in God's power, and in God's plan. This is something that characterized Paul's life. It takes faith to be content. Here he is in Rome. He's in a jail cell. He's awaiting possible execution, and yet he's content. Even more than that, he is full of joy. Now, how is that even possible? Here's how. Because he trusts wholeheartedly that God loves him. He trusts wholeheartedly that God has the power to do anything, even to get him out of this situation. And he trusts in God's plan, that God is sovereign over all things, even over this. So instead of complaining about the lean times and the difficult seasons, Paul has learned to be content, to receive even this from the hand of the Lord. Whether he has a lot or whether he has a little, Paul is not going to let his bottom line determine his well-being. His contentment isn't going to be dependent on his circumstances because he has based his trust in God's love, power, and plan. Now there's an important distinction to be made, and this brings us to our second point here. And that is this, contentment is not the same as complacency. Contentment is not the same as complacency. And this is an important distinction to make because when you talk about contentment, the, the question that comes up in people's minds, and, and maybe rightly so, is, well, if I'm supposed to just be content in whatever circumstances I'm in, in whatever situation I'm in, then, then should, does that mean I shouldn't bother trying to change those circumstances? That I should just kind of settle in and if it's bad, well, I guess this is just how it is. I just got to learn to love it. You know, there's a funny saying in Hungarian that says, hey, this is terrible, 
learn to love it, right? And that's just kind of, some people say, hey, is that, uh, is that what contentment's all about? That you just learn to love something? Like, why bother praying if I'm supposed to be content in whatever situation I'm in? Does that mean I shouldn't try to improve my situation? That I should just accept the way that things are and not bother trying to change them? No, see, that's not contentment. What you're talking about in that case is complacency. And one of the big themes of Paul's letter to the Philippians is that complacency is something we must fight against. So then what is contentment? Contentment is being able to say, I will not complain about my circumstances. I will not feel sorry for myself. I will trust in God's love. I will trust in God's power. And I will trust in God's plan for my life no matter what happens. So I'll give you another example. I've talked about this several times, but those of you who are new haven't heard it. But my, uh, my daughter, who's now six, when she was born, the doctors gave us a very dire prognosis. And uh, they told us that she... You said there's a 10% chance that she'd survive, and if she survived, there's a 90% chance that she was going to be severely handicapped. And so what did we do? Well, we didn't do nothing. In fact, we did just the opposite of nothing. We did everything that we could possibly do. We prayed a lot. We contacted everybody we knew and asked them to contact everybody they knew and asked them all to pray for God to heal our daughter. We took our daughter to three different hospitals for weeks at a time. We, we did six hours of therapy at home every single day for nine months. But we also made a choice that after this was all said and done, after we had done everything that we could, whatever happened, we were going to accept it from God's hand and we were going to trust in God's love, his power, and his plan for us and for our daughter. And by God's grace, our daughter did get better. She's here today and, and we praise God for that. And the thing though is this, that if she hadn't, if it hadn't gone that way, we wouldn't have cursed God, we wouldn't have complained, and we would have trusted in God's love, God's power, and God's plan for us and for our daughter. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about contentment. Contentment doesn't mean that you stop trying. Contentment is saying, no matter what happens, God, I will trust in your love, in your power, and your plan, and I will trust that you will use even this for my good and for your glory. You know, it's interesting. This is, I was thinking about it uh, last night. I was thinking, this is the third time that I have taught through Paul's letter to the Philippians in a setting like this. And uh, it's interesting, though, that this time around, I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before that really kind of became clear to me as I was teaching this time. And I think that's one of the benefits of studying the Word in this way. You know, maybe you've, you've heard a series on Philippians or, or Colossians, but maybe this time around, God's going to bring something to the surface that you hadn't noticed before. But anyway, here's the thing that I really came to see this time very clearly, that besides joy... The great theme of this letter is how Christianity is at the same time about resting in Christ and about pursuing Christ. That's something that Paul brings up over and over again. He talks about resting in God's sovereignty, in God's plan, trusting that he will accomplish his purposes no matter what, and at the same time, striving and doing everything, straining with all of your might, doing everything that you can to do God's will. See, it's both of those things. They're both part of the Christian life. And over and over throughout this letter, Paul brings this theme up. We rest in what Jesus has done for us. It's not what we have to do. It's what he has done for us. We trust in God's sovereignty over our circumstances. We trust in God's plan. And yet, we exert ourselves as much as an Olympic runner, he says. We take bold steps of faith to fulfill God's calling on our lives and to carry out his mission. I'd put it this way. The Christian life is a blend of rest 
and pursuit. Not alternating between the two, but a blend of rest and pursuit. On the one hand, resting in Christ. On the other hand, actively pursuing Christ. And both have to be present if we are really to embrace the gospel and to follow Jesus. And that brings us to our third point, and that is this. The roots of your discontentment usually go deeper than you think. Now, I mentioned that all of us have a sense of discontentment within us. And personally, I think the reason we have that discontentment, well, I'll tell you why in just a minute, but the thing is that what we usually think is the root of our discontentment is not deep enough. The roots of our discontentment usually go deeper than we think. In Mark chapter 2, very famous story, Jesus goes to Capernaum and a huge crowd, when they find out that Jesus is there, he's in a house and this huge crowd descends upon the house. They fill the house, they're overflowing out of the house, they're outside, there's this huge crowd and Jesus is in the house with this crowd of people and he's preaching the word is what it says. And some men, they hear that Jesus is in town and they get excited to hear that because they have a friend who's crippled, he's paralyzed and they hope that Jesus will be able to heal him but they can't get into the house because there's just so many people and so they get innovative and they go up on the roof and they bust a hole in the ceiling of the house. It's an act of vandalism and they lower their friend down through the hole in the ceiling to where Jesus is at. They're hoping that Jesus will heal him. It's extremely bold on their part. And when Jesus saw their bold act of faith, here's what he said to the paralytic. You ready for this? He said, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's kind of a bizarre thing to say in a situation like that. I mean, let's be honest, right? Like if you were to come to me and be like, Nick, can I borrow your car? And I was like, your sins are forgiven. You'd be like, well, uh, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that, but uh, I was asking about the car. That's kind of like these guys, right? They, they come and they, they lower their friend through the roof, and this is what they get? Your sins are forgiven? Well, thanks, I guess, right? But that's not what we came here for. I'm paralyzed. I have an immediate need. Can't you see that? That's what I came for help with. Why, are you, why aren't you helping me with that? Why are you doing this instead? See, here's the deal. Jesus knows that this man has a much bigger problem a much more immediate problem than his physical condition. And what he's saying is this, I see your suffering, but please understand this. Please understand there's a deeper issue. There's a bigger need. Your greatest need is not just to be healed physically. That is a need, absolutely. And Jesus did heal a lot of people. But with this man, he, he looked at him and he looked into his heart and he said, your need, your need is first to be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God. Jesus said in another place, he said, what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? What Jesus is saying is, you're not going deep enough. Don't you see? You're not going deep enough. You think that this is the cause of your discontentment, but you're not going deep enough. You're not getting to the real issue at the heart of your discontentment. You see, like any person who can't do something, surely this crippled man would have thought, if only I could walk. That's what I really need. If only I could walk, I would never complain about anything ever again in my whole life. If only I could walk, then I would be happy. I wouldn't need anything else. That's just the one thing. You know, I, I promise I'll never complain again. Have you ever had thoughts like that? If only I was, if only I had, fill in the blank. Then I would be happy. Then I would be content. But what Jesus is saying is, you're not going deep enough. You're not going deep enough. The roots of your discontentment go deeper than you think. That crippled man thought that all he needed was to be healed physically, but what he really needed was something more. He needed to be forgiven of his sins. He needed to be made right with God. If Jesus would have only healed his body, 
that man would have felt great, wouldn't he? Until, that is, the euphoria wore off and he realized that the discontentment in his heart as he lay there in bed at night, the discontentment was still there because he hadn't gone deep enough yet. He hadn't gotten to the root of the discontentment. He'd only gone skin deep and the real issue was in his heart. When we talk about this pursuit of happiness, here's the thing. Most people have underestimated the depth of the longings of their heart. Most people have underestimated the depths of the longings of their heart. Most people think that, that what they truly long for, the, the source of their discontentment is something which can be found here on earth. Success, material wealth, a relationship with another person. But the reality is that what our hearts truly long for is nothing less than redemption. What our hearts truly long for, what your heart truly longs for is nothing less than perfection. What your heart longs for is nothing less than God himself. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And in Jesus, this is the hope of the gospel, that God has provided not only for our surface desires, but for our true needs. And when we come to know him, we find true contentment regardless of our circumstances. Now the fourth and final lesson from this section in Philippians is this, the most unexpected key to joy. Now in this letter, we have seen several keys to experiencing joy, some of which seem very counterintuitive. For example, we've learned that to, be, to experience joy, we must be humble, right? And that seems counterintuitive. It seems counterintuitive to say that to find joy in your life means to seek the welfare of others above your own. That seems counterintuitive, but I think perhaps this final key to experiencing joy that Paul points out here is the most surprising, the most unexpected. You know what it is? It's honoring God with your money. From verses 14 through 19, Paul remembers, he recalls how the Philippians had supported him financially. Even after he had left Philippi and gone to Thessalonica and he had pastored churches in other places, Paul went to Thessalonica and the Thessalonians weren't giving in the same way that the Philippians had given. And so the Philippians were actually supporting the ministry that Paul was doing in Philippi. And it says that they actually sent him financial support twice while he was there. We also know that while Paul was in Corinth, the church in Philippi was supporting the ministry there financially. Now in Thessalonica and in Corinth, those people uh, were not giving to support the church which was ministering to them. They were consuming and not contributing. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul kind of scolds them, and this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Right? I, that's a shame, he says. He's saying to the Corinthians, why should the Philippians have to support the ministry that you're receiving from? That's not right. You should have been supporting the house that you were a part of. But instead, we had to rely on the generosity of, of outside people, of Philippians, to cover the cost. Paul was writing to the Corinthians to tell them that they ought to be honoring God with their money and contributing to the work of God financially. But here's the thing, the stinginess of the Corinthians, the stinginess of the Thessalonians, what did it result in? It resulted in the Philippians being doubly blessed, triply blessed, even more blessed, because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you could put it this way, God will even bless your selfishness. Of course, you won't experience any of those blessings, someone else will, but God can even bless selfishness. See, that's what Paul's saying here, that every time the Philippians gave, 
He was excited for them, and here's why. Because it produced fruit to their account. And all of the good fruit that came from the ministries which they were supporting, which they were financing, was credited to their account. Those of you who this summer have supported these mission teams going this summer, those of you who have given to, to purchase Bibles for Iranian refugees, the thing we did a couple months ago, uh, those of you who have given to support the human trafficking ministry we support in Eastern Europe, let me tell you what, you are a vital part of those ministries. I've been on the other side of that. I remember you know, being a missionary and seeing how directly the monies that came in directly enabled ministry. The fruit of those ministries increases to your credit. Paul says, know this, giving is good because it's good for you. He says, you're storing up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. He says, like a good investor, you're using what God has given you to further his work and your reward will be given to you in heaven. You see, getting to heaven is all about Jesus and embracing what he has done for you. But the Bible also tells us that we will get rewards in heaven based on what we did with what we had while we had the time to do it. You know, money, when we talk about money, uh, it's something I, I don't like to talk about a lot, and I probably avoid it more than I ought to. I realized that recently. I, I keep a spreadsheet of all the topics that I talk about, and I notice that this is the one that I almost never talk about. So here you go. If you're here for the first time or you're visiting, just know we don't want anything from you. We just want your attention. But I do believe it's important that we talk about money. Money is, is not inherently good nor inherently bad. Money is morally neutral, kind of like a brick right? Like, oh, hey, I've got a brick. Is that good or is that bad? Well, it depends. What'd you do with your brick? Well, I threw my brick through somebody's, you know, window. Well, was that good? No, that was bad. Well, what'd you do with your brick? Well, I used my brick to build a hospital. Was that good? Yes, that was good. So it's, that's what money's like, right? It's not that money's inherently good or bad. What matters is what you do with it. And money can either be a tool that you use or it can become an idol that you worship. Money can either be a tool that you use to worship God, to build his kingdom, to care about what he cares about, or it can become an idol where instead of using it to worship God, uh, you, or instead of using it and worshiping God, you worship money. You know, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, I lived in uh, Eastern Europe for a while and a relatively poor country, and you don't have to have money to idolize money. In fact, I'd say that people who don't have money are maybe even more inclined to idolizing money than people who do have money, because at least people who do have money have realized that it's empty, that it doesn't fulfill the, the true uh, longing of your heart. But see, we live in a world where, where many people love money and use people. God has called us as his people to do just the opposite, to love people and to use money, to use it as a tool to do his work. And when you really understand the gospel, what it does is it sets you free to be radically generous because God has been radically generous to you. And this is the same reasoning that Paul used with the Corinthians. Remember, with the Corinthians, he's writing them because he's telling them, you guys are not... Uh, doing well with your generosity. And, and this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the reasoning he gives for why they should be generous givers, because Jesus was radically generous towards them. Therefore, to follow Jesus means to be radically generous with what you have. 
Here's what Paul tells the Philippians. He says, thank you for this financial gift. But you know what really excites me? What excites me is not what this gift does for me. What really excites me is what this gift does for you. Because every time you give, it's causing fruit to abound to your account. You are sowing seeds of generosity. And as a result, you will reap a harvest of joy and good fruit, spiritual fruit, both in this life and continuing on into the life which is to come. When the Bible teaches about our attitude towards money, it's, uh, the, the principle it teaches is that we are called to be stewards, that everything ultimately belongs to God, and we are called to be stewards of God's resources. What is a steward? A steward is a person who has been entrusted with managing someone else's estate or someone else's finances. And the job of a steward is to manage that estate, manage those finances in accordance with the owner's wishes and desires. And so that's how we are called in the Bible to look at money and possessions, not just money, but everything we have. It's not really ours at the end of the day. It's God's. And he's entrusted us with some portion of it, and he wants us to use it as he would see fit. And so when I'm spending my money, I ask myself the question, is this what God would want me to do with his money? Now, I seek to do this with my family. Uh, Even though I'm a pastor, I figure I'd give you my personal take on this. Uh, even though I'm a pastor of this church, this is the church that we belong to. My kids go to children's ministry. We get ministered to by you here in this church, and so we belong to this church, and therefore we give financially to this church. One of the things that we do is we follow the Old Testament principle where God asks the people in the Old Testament to give a tithe or 10% of their income back to the work of God. In the Old Testament, went towards the ministry of the temple. In the New Testament, we believe that this would be the local church, which would be the equivalent of that, where you are ministered to. So we follow that principle in our family. We give a tithe, 10%, to be used for the work of God through the church, you know, paying the rent and, and supporting missions and outreaches and buying children's ministry curriculum and saving for our church to eventually have our own building one day. And with what's left over after that, then we pay our bills and we do whatever else we need to do. But before we pay our bills, we start with our tithe because what we've found is that if we wait until the end of the month and hope that there will be something left over, uh, there never is, right? If if we got it, we spend it, which is kind of how we are. Um, But we found that if we give to God first, and that shapes how we spend the rest of our money, it kind of shapes our priorities for the rest of the month. It also represents something. If you give to God from what's left over, where is he on the priority list? He's, I mean, by definition, he's your last priority, at least in that area. But if you give to him first, it's kind of a statement saying, I am prioritizing this. I am putting this first. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. I'm sorry. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your increase. So that's what we seek to do. And sometimes in addition to the tithe that we give to the church, we also give an offering to another cause, a missions organization or uh, someone else who's in need, someone we know who needs something. You know, money is, again, like I said, it's not something that I really like to talk about because, uh, you know, it can seem kind of self-serving, I think, as a pastor, whenever a pastor talks about money. I've always said I would rather focus my attention on Jesus and the gospel, and I'll let God worry about the money. But here's the problem with that, is that Jesus, if if I want to talk about Jesus, the problem is that Jesus sure did talk a lot about money. He talked about money a lot. 
And the Bible has a lot to say about how we should handle our money in light of the gospel. And so what we do with our money, it reveals a lot about us. And so therefore, if we're going to be faithful to talk about Jesus and the gospel, we have to talk about money because money reveals a lot about what we believe and what we value. Now, I don't think that the tithing thing that I mentioned, I don't think that that is a rule that you need to necessarily follow. I don't think it's a law. I believe it's a principle. And the purpose of the principle isn't only to fund the work of God, although that is important. The greater principle is that honoring God with our money sets us free from self-centeredness. It, it, when we open our hands, it, it lets go of our selfishness. We, and it also gets our hearts and our minds focused on God and his work. You know, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know if you've ever had a stock, but when you have your money in a particular stock, guess what you do every day, right? When you wake up, you check the stock price. You check it at the end of the day. You want to know, how's my stock doing? Did it go up? Did it go down? Did I make money? Did I not make money? Wherever you put your treasure, your heart and your mind naturally follow. If all your treasure goes to yourself, then guess where your heart and mind go as well? Guess where your heart and mind will be focused? But if you are giving your treasure to the work of God, to missions, to whatever, these kind of things, guess where your heart and your mind will be focused? You're going to want to know how that mission's going. How did that turn out? How did that project go? How's the ministry that I'm, that I'm part of, that I'm supporting? How is it going? I'm invested at this point. And when you open your hand to give, again, you let go of self-centeredness. And you are directing your heart and your mind to be aligned with God's work and God's mission. An important key to experiencing joy is to honor God with your money. And that's where this incredible promise comes in in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now who is this, who is he saying this to? Is this just a general promise that applies to everybody? Well, no. No, it's not. This promise was given to a group of people who had been giving sacrificially. It took faith for the Philippians from their poverty to give an offering like this. But it's to these people that Paul then makes this promise. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And maybe you're a person who says, you know what, I want to do this, right? Like I want to honor God with my finances, but I don't know if I can, right? Like I'm barely making ends meet as it is. I, I don't know if I can. If I were to give a tithe, I'm going to have to cut from somewhere. Maybe I have to, you know, uh, cut back on one or two things that I spend money on. And by the way, that is kind of the point. But if you are willing to take those bold steps, let me tell you, if you're willing to take those steps and honor God with your finances, this promise of Paul here applies to you. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And one last thing. Do you know that this is the one thing, the one thing that the Bible actually encourages us to test God on? Interesting, right? This is the one thing. In Malachi chapter 3, God tells his people, go ahead, test me in this. Honor me with your money and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour down blessing upon you. The most unexpected key to joy is this. Honor God with your finances. Now let's end the book with these final three verses. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
Those in Caesar's household refers to people who are coming to know Jesus through Paul being imprisoned in Rome. See, that was Paul's attitude. Rather than being a victim and saying, I'm chained to Roman guards, he said, no, Roman guards are chained to me. And he was telling them about Jesus. And we see that they were coming to believe in Jesus. And with this, Paul closes his epistle of joy, reminding us that the pursuit of happiness will only end when we come to know the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, have you received that grace? Have you rested in that grace? Have you responded to that grace? I encourage you to do so today. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that though you were rich, you became poor so that through you, we might become rich. And Lord, we receive that grace. And Lord, we want to rest in that grace. Those of us who have received it, we pray you'd help us to rest. But Lord, would you help us also to respond? That in our contentment, that we wouldn't become complacent. But Lord, help us to to do both, to rest fully in you, to rest fully in your plan and your sovereignty, and to trust in your love, and at the same time, to do everything in our power, to pursue you and to pursue doing your will for your glory. Lord, we also pray for our country. This has been a very hard week for our country. And Lord, we pray for peace to reign on our streets in this country. Lord, we pray that you would bind Satan in the ways that he wants to hurt people um, of any background, Lord. We know that you love them. And we ask for peace to reign. And Lord, we pray that uh, righteousness and truth, justice would reign on the streets of our country. Lord, we pray that it would begin with us as well. Lord, that you would renew us, that you would regenerate us, that you would make us into the people of God, and that as we go out into this world, that we might represent you and serve you well. So Lord, I pray today for anyone who hasn't yet received your grace, who says, you know what, I'm here today, and this is all really good, but I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. Lord, I pray that those people right now, as as they're praying with their heads bowed, Lord, I pray that they would make that decision to say, Yes, Jesus, I receive you. Thank you for what you did for me. I admit that I've sinned, but thank you, Lord, that your love is bigger than anything that I've ever done, Lord. Your love is huge. Thank you, Lord, that you saved me, that your love is greater than death. And I receive that, and I choose to respond to it. But may we respond to your grace as we go from here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.